0: Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. For just over 20 years, the world has invested billions and billions of dollars into improving global health and tackling three infectious diseases that have killed millions. HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And during that period, real advances have been made in the fight against two of them. HIV infections with proper treatment has become a chronic disease. AIDS-related deaths around the world have decreased by over 70% in the past two decades. Malaria deaths are also down 27%, and it's no longer the greatest cause of death in tropical regions of the world. Fortunately, tuberculosis, the disease of poverty, is. I'm joined by the Chief Policy Officer of the Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, Ambassador Mark Lagan. Friends of the Global Fight distributes about $4 billion each year fighting these diseases, from distributing high-tech antiretroviral therapies to HIV-positive people to providing mosquito nettings to villages in malarial-prone areas. A former State Department ambassador on anti-human trafficking efforts and a former president of Freedom House, a nonprofit defending human rights, Lagan, was a guest of the Tulsa Committee on Foreign Relations last night. He's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Mark Legon, welcome to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm really
1: delighted to be with you.
0: Yeah, uh, the past decade, I would say it's been a decade of progress in global health for the most part, especially in some of the diseases your organization emphasizes, especially AIDS and malaria. And I have to begin by asking you about the Uganda new anti-homosexuality law. It became law at the end of May.
1: How will this affect anti-HIV efforts in Central Africa? Well, human rights are at the, at the heart of programs to end infectious diseases or end them as, as epidemics. In Africa, much of the demographics and epidemiology of AIDS is mother-to-child passage, but men having sex with men, um, trans people, and so on is very much a part of the AIDS phenomenon. To reach the people who are in need for them to get care— Um, You have to break through stigma, Um, and so this is a backward movement, um, and it's probably a harbinger of more. If you look at other countries in East Africa that are considering um, similar legislation, but I do think about this: this is this is not prejudice. This is um, punishing people for um, you know their gay identity, and. Under that law, flagrant forms of being LGBT are punishable um, by death, a huge obstacle to public health programs.
0: Does that uh, spill over beyond Uganda's borders, for example? Or is well, this going to be lo- localized? <clears throat> the effects on global health, is it going to be localized?
1: Well, I'm at a, a nonprofit that you know, works on fighting for health resources um, from the US government for the world. Um, but we work with some Kenyan partners about their um, their work to advocate to their government to spend money on on health and on the right people and and the marginalized and that there's a, a you know a real possibility of something similar happening there. We there's an expectation that this will be uh, infectious, as it were, uh, in in the region. We're watching it very closely. No,
0: yeah. well, you mentioned that really in Uganda. Uh, Infection release stems from mother to child for the most part, but I would think the stigma of HIV is still in probably in large parts, well heck, parts of the United States as well to this day. Yeah, there is. It is still thought of it as a gay disease, Uh, and 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 that's you know that's not right. That's not you know, but I I think perceptions go that way. Yeah,
1: and in government and in in university and think tanks, I've had a career working on human rights issues and uh you know whether it's human trafficking that i worked on as um us ambassador uh, or you know looking at genocide people who are are treated as non people uh and then are blamed for having gotten into the situation themselves um is particularly galling and and uh, violative of basic human dignity but this is true and in the united states it's true too um yeah, African American um, population is a you know a, a universe of where there has hasn't been as much success on HIV/AIDS, and those who don't have full access to the health care system um, are there. But there's al- there's also substantial stigma um, in that community. Um, but there's stigma for for women in Africa, not just LGBT populations, and um, there's a a pattern of men. Who are 23 to 35, who expose um, females from 15 to 23, that's the major pattern of what happens. And as population, uh, youth population grows, that goes on. But those women who are infected, um, and the men, are subject to stigma when their friends, their communities know that they have AIDS.
0: Yeah. And of course, Uganda was seeing a lot of progress Uh I know there's the 95-95-95 rule, which I believe is like 95% of positive cases are identified, then 95% of those are on retrovirals, and 95% of those
1: people are virally suppressive. Right, exactly. They were closing in on this. They were, and the goal um, that the UN system set used to be 90-90-90, for those three categories of knowing your status, getting treated, and viral suppression. And it was moving up to 95, 95, 95. Um, Uganda's had some great successes on on that and, indeed, malaria, um, with the U.S. working with them in um, bilateral programs and through the Global Fund uh, to Fight AIDS, TB, and malaria.
0: Yeah. So as your organization views this new law, what impact is this going to have on the treatment of global health, the global health diseases that you work against?
1: Well, uh, you know, through the 20 years of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, the U.S. PEPFAR program and the Global Fund, um, this has been an obstacle. I mean, for HIV-AIDS, it's one part a part of the picture of who's um, vulnerable to AIDS. Um, so, this was something that when PEPFAR was created or a global fund were created 20 years ago was a substantial impediment. Um, interesting thing in Africa were tribal leaders or um, religious leaders, were they contributing to the stigma or were they important voices to remove stigma? Um, I've met, you know, um, bishops and uh, clergy in Africa in the Anglican Communion who who were sort of part of that pivot to help eliminate stigma. But um, this is persistent, and it's by no means East Africa only. Um, uh, there are you know, certainly places in, in Asia and elsewhere um, where the stigma stands in the way of people getting access to health, even though antiretroviral drugs means that someone doesn't have a death sentence like they might have had a quarter century ago. And the proper use of, of those...
0: Uh... Uh, retroviral uh, viral agents can mean suppression of the virus. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned at uh, the top of our uh, conversation, the last decade has, for the most part, been a decade of progress against HIV and malaria. What would you say were the biggest successes against those two? And I would throw tuberculosis out of the uh, that equation because 20, 30 years ago, tuber- or maybe 40 years ago, tuberculosis was on its way
1: Downward, but it kind of moves around, and it it's a disease of poverty. Uh, yeah. your, so much. Your ten year fr- time frame is is the right one, um, but also the the big U.S. bilateral programs and the Global Fund have been in existence in twenty years, and that's a useful time frame as well. Um, you have it just right. The success in driving down um, the mortality rate and incidence of AIDS and malaria has meant that of the three diseases. One you get by passage of bodily fluids, AIDS. One you get by respiratory inhalation, TB, much like COVID. And the third, uh, malaria spread by mosquitoes. Um, That TB now kills more people annually than AIDS and malaria combined. Wow. And that
0: that is a big change because malaria was always the top infectious disease mortality right. creating infectious um, and
1: disease. COVID-19, you know, created great disruption in health systems and international programs to fight those three diseases. Um, TB was probably the most um, disrupted, perhaps in part because um, some of the same specialists, uh, you know, moved from one respiratory disease to another. But the Global Fund uh, stepped into the situation in in two ways. One, by creating an emergency fund to assist countries with COVID-19 and to stop that disruption of, of fighting the three diseases, uh, but also to think cl- clearly about TB so that the same, you know, diagnostic equipment that could be used to find TB could be used for COVID-19. You don't need to have a lot more of the machines. You need more people trained to, to use it around the clock. And that helped um, in grappling with the TB situation. Let's take a step back
0: for just a moment and maybe talk a little bit about the Global Fund Against AIDS, tu- tuberculosis and malaria. How is it funded? Where is it working? How does it work with uh, various nations around the world? Yeah.
1: It was founded 20 years ago, 21 years ago, and the three biggest infectious uh, disease killers in the world were AIDS, TB, and malaria. This was
0: a George W. Bush initiative, along he, with the others? The U.S.
1: was the first um, pledger and donor to the to the global fund. The UN Secretary General at the time was actually, you know, perhaps the best Secretary General that that we've had, Kofi Annan. He realized that the UN alone was not going to be able to grapple the problem. And, um, had the insight that you really don't want an organization that is solely made up of governments. And so the Global Fund is a multi-stakeholder partnership, which is a nerdy way of saying it has businesses and nonprofits and uh, activist groups and populations who who are exposed to the disease, part. Of the governance and the implementation. So, I imagine the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a big funder. A major, uh, a major part of it. Um, and the organization I work, you know, for is part of uh, a whole system of advocates, researchers, and implementers that um, the Gates Foundation assists. But um, over the 20 years of the Global Fund's period in action, an estimated 50 million lives have been saved by the Global Fund and its partners, countries, and other programs. And the incidence of the three diseases combined is is down 50%. Uh, But really the most striking is is HIV-AIDS, where at a peak um, in 2004, 2 million people were dying a year of HIV-AIDS, but now it's down to a a third of that 650,000 people.
0: That's quite good. My guest today is former Ambassador Mark Lagan. He's the chief policy officer for the Friends of the Global Fund Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, which uh, invests about $4 billion a year on global health. He's also a former ambassador in the State Department where he led efforts against uh, uh, human trafficking. And he was a guest of the Tulsa Committee on Foreign Relations, speaking on the U.S. leadership on global health security uh, last evening, and he's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Well, obviously, that's some big successes. And what's a bit interesting is when you look at these big multi-organizational uh, efforts on global health, it really involves everything from high-tech, new vaccines, to really low-tech solutions that's involved in this success. What would you say are some of the biggest Techniques or or uh, you know processes that have really contributed to lowering that number.
1: When President Bush proposed in his State mm-hmm. of the Union address 20 years ago to create PEPFAR, the American program, uh, which would be the great complement to the Global Fund, he said, you know, prices were dropping for antiretroviral uh, treatments, and it was you know, it was a moral crime for people to be turned away by health systems in Africa and. So the ability to scale um, the distribution of those has, I I think, been the most important part of the Global Fund's story. Um, The Global Fund, by pooled procurement, uh, which is a geeky way of saying big buys that have pharma companies uh, and uh, other medical commodity companies being able to count on a, a certain amount of their product being sold. They, they could permit the price to come down to a level that developing countries could deal with. But yes, you're right. Um, there are, you know, very basic things, um, you know, malaria bed nets keeping um, up with um, the latest resistance to insecticide being countered by new waves. That's one of the most simple but really important ways of stopping um, children being um, through just merely a mosquito bite. Um, succumbing to to malaria. You get a fever and, you know, 72 hours later, your child could be dead, if not um, for malaria bed nets. Mm -hmm. Um, But to high technology, we've been publishing studies from our uh, nonprofit about how digital technology is helping Africa leapfrog uh, some steps uh, and and really allow um, people to have more um, control of their access to um, health systems and um, strengthening supply chains. There's been a lot of look at supply chains during the COVID period and how they've broken down. So digital technology will help too.
0: I remember I had a guest on not too long ago, a couple of years ago, talking about you know uh, the use of uh, uh, development of small, portable refrigeration units that would stay cold for a week to two weeks, enable to get public health workers to inaccessible places with vaccines.
1: That they can put in arms that haven't spoiled. Yeah, and there have been ways in which the the business community has helped with the know-how. I mean, obviously, you could think of a pharma company, but um, for instance, Coca-Cola has played a role for uh, many years in getting properly refrigerated, you know, uh, medicines to remote places because that's what they do. <laughs> And that has helped with the so-called last mile project of of getting to those remote communities, including on malaria.
0: Well, certainly COVID was a setback in global health in all sorts of areas, not only because of the effects of the virus uh, on global populations and, and just being a global health pandemic by itself, but also in fighting these other diseases. Has the global health system really regained the initiative on these three diseases since the pandemic, the worst parts of the pandemic? I,
1: th- I think so. Um, yeah, every three years, the Global Fund, as a test of your question, has a, a, a big donor conference and the Biden administration um, stepped up to host it uh, last September and um, the U.S. pledged to increase its contributions by 28% and then, you know, the Germans and the Japanese and the Canadians and the European Commission all followed suit with equally large increases. So um, getting back on track and accelerating progress towards these diseases not disappearing but no longer being of epidemic status um, is returning. But the, the real issue out there is there are going to be inevitable new pandemics. We had SARS, we had Ebola, we had COVID-19, um, you know, there are going to be more. And how do countries around in low and middle income level um, prepare? Um, it's not in the uh, the nature of political systems to, to buy expensive insurance policies against the future, but you're going to spend um, – there's the, the financial and human cost is going to be immensely larger than um, preparing for um, future pandemics. Um, the world community has created a new fund housed at the World Bank to try and grapple um, with pandemic preparedness and funding countries. Um, uh, I, I feel very strongly that you should take advantage of things that exist, like the PEPFAR program and the Global Fund, and piggyback on them. Use them. Learn from them. Um, the Global Fund's you know, great contribution is not so much the pooled procurement or the technologies it, it helps deploy, but the fact that it incorporates the voice of local communities and civil society. Um, and those are lessons. There's no um, pandemic of the future um, that will not benefit from having a voice of the community health workers or the people who will be exposed to it um, not just health ministries. Yeah,
0: well, I would think uh, just the reaction in COVID in, in the American public health sector has exposed. And it's interesting that, you know, that sense of urgency is certainly not being communicated to the general public right. about fixing things there. And in fact, I think there's, a, a you know, close to half the country have a healthy suspicion of anything having to do with fixing the public health uh, system, so if that's happening in the richest healthcare country in in the world, what are middle income and lower income countries? I mean, what are they taking away f- from the experience of global health in in COVID, and
1: what can they change? What what's probably tops on their list? Well, um, the hazard of referring to health systems is that it. it you know, it's broad and vague, and it, right. it, it brings to mind the thought, oh, if, if the U.S. or other countries are helping fund health systems, does that mean you're, you know, underwriting bureaucrats and health ministries? But health systems means laboratories. It means um, surveillance. It means um, people who aren't doctors, who are community health workers, who are underpaid or unpaid, but them being trained. Um, and that's the connective tissue um, that's necessary. And you you know you can you can have a twofer. You can um, make sure that every taxpayer dollar that's spent on um, the global fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, um, it's going to. Uh, one of the things you need to do to fight those three diseases is strengthen health systems. But at the same time, in low and middle income countries, um, you're creating a resilience that means that the next time um, there's an unpredictable but inevitable. Um, uh, a pandemic that arises, that those those countries will be ready for it. Uh, conservative Republican uh, uh, nearby Arkansas Senator John Bozeman says, uh, "A you know a pandemic is only an air you know airplane flight away, and so uh, it's not just a moral matter that we're connected to others and humankind, but." You know, it's a it's a wise policy for those countries and us to think about those resilient health systems.
0: Well, yeah. well, as we look at things that need to be addressed in the wake of COVID, what what's first in your mind,
1: as a policy officer? Well, it uh, I have a crew that um it, it come is in human rights. So you've mentioned right. some yeah. of these things. I used to at Freedom House. I would work as an envoy against human trafficking. Um I've looked at the pathologies of the u n system and the way it deals with with human rights um, in a in a funny biased way but i I do think um, a voice for those who are marginalized or um, you know are are part of local communities who can help reach those who are in need um, those are really important and those are not the most high tech um, simple commodity answers but Something that we have some experience with institutions um, like the Global Fund that have, have done it, and that's something to deepen um, an approach for you know those who are um, most vulnerable to the diseases, whether they're women or um, they're migrants or um, or others. Um, you know, tuberculosis hits those who are in close quarters, so those who are in mega city slums or refugee camps. Um, those kinds of considerations about the local voices and implementers is, is uh, still, in my mind, the key.
0: My guest today is former Ambassador Mark Lagan. He's a chief policy officer f- uh, for the Friends of the Global Fund Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. He was a guest of the Tulsa Committee on Foreign Relations last night, speaking on U.S. leadership and global health security. Well, in our last couple of minutes, let me ask about Malaria because malaria is you know you've seen some incredible advances uh from being usually the leading cause of infectious death now it's it's what third second or third you have a a vaccine RTS.S that is uh apparently could be a game changer mm-hmm. or at least could be the first step in a in a series of game changers um and of course, these low-budget items like just having effective mosquito covering, uh, netting, uh, to prevent infection. Let me ask you about the vaccine part of it. Is that where the big focus should be, or should it be on just it's, par- it's part? A- it's part of prophylactic protection.
1: Part of a mixed approach. I mean, right now, really, you know, statistically, the, the vaccine that it exists is probably going to work on about fifty percent of the people who get it. So that alone won't work. It'll improve over time, Um, but a a layered approach of prevention. Um, We're continuing to have the latest generation of malaria bed nets that um, have insecticides that not only don't harm the people, but are continuing to be effective against um, mutating bugs that that (laughs) learn how to avoid what was in the bed nets before. There's spraying uh, in areas um, also, to, to fight the mosquitoes, um, and and then developing also as another line of defense, um, the drugs um, for treating people who do get it, so that that child, you know, with a fever, uh, within seventy-two hours doesn't expire. Uh, but it a, a vaccine. Of course, it's very much in in the psyche of people today, following COVID nineteen, that vaccines are um, are essential. Uh, they're part of a, a, a larger picture with tests and other prevention methods and treatments.
0: All right. Well, we wish you great success with your work. It sounds like it, it's probably incredibly rewarding to try to make a difference in that way. Mark Legon, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Former Ambassador Mark Lagan, the Chief Policy Officer of the Friends of the Global Fund Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa. He was the guest of the Tulsa Committee on Foreign Relations, speaking on the U.S. leadership on global health security last night. Before we conclude today's program, I'd like to take just a moment to thank you for listening to Studio Tulsa today over the last years, in fact, the past 30 years of this program. I hope you've learned a lot about new people, ideas, and issues during those 30 years. I know I've learned more than I can ever even attempt to explain. And it's been my honor and privilege to host this show, to hear your gracious feedback and your constructive criticism over the years. And it's been a pleasure to host this show. But with time and age, I have to tell you, it's getting a little more difficult. As I approach retirement in the next few years, it's still a few years away. As general manager, it's important to place Public Radio Tulsa in a position so it's really poised to blossom even further with a new generation of leadership. And this will require more attention than I can currently support with this program as well. It's said that all things and radio shows must come to an end. And now is the time for Studio Tulsa. So on June 30th, Scott Gregory, my partner in this endeavor and a marvelous producer, my guest host John Schumann and I will air our final episode of this program. I have to tell you, on a selfish note, I'd rather step away with people asking, why are you quitting, rather than when are you quitting? And frankly, it's possible that both questions might be asked these days. You'll hear more about a revamp of our daytime lineup in the coming days. And John and I are exploring a weekend show starting this fall. So I'll still be in the interview business, just not on a daily basis. So, this is Studio Tulsa for today. My program and editor is Scott Gregory, and I'm Rich Fisher. And I mean it when I say thank you for listening.